Indeed. Welcome to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. It is Saturday, September 19th. My name is Jason Taylor, your host of Evidence of Design, and I'm joined in the WXIR studios by my good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. Good morning. And Mary Lawrence. Good morning. For those new to Evidence of Design, we critique economic inequality. Why is there so much economic inequality in our society, and what are its effects? That is the aim of our show, and thank you for tuning in to your local grassroots independent media station of WXIR. Again, we're live for you on Saturday, September 19th. We have a full show packed today. Uh, so we're talking about a few things, first of which we'll be covering a report released by the RAND Corporation that details just how much the vast majority of Americans have been left behind by the economy. If we, as in you know the bottom 90% of income earners in the United States, if we were making as much today as uh, we were making right after World War II in the 50s and 60s, uh, the median income in the United States would be effectively doubled. The average income in the United States, or sorry, the median, not the, not the mean, the median income in the U.S. would be around $100,000. And the reason why our economic, or why our incomes are so low comparatively, according to the report released by the Rand Corporation, and I would agree with their findings as well, as we've discussed on this show, is that we live in a winner-take-all economy where free market capitalism is valued more than other things in society. And therefore, hey, if you can amass all of the political and economic power for yourself, go be it. That means you're smart. That means you're a hard worker. That means you're doing the right thing. We will start off the show by just quickly going over the results of the report. We will deal uh, with that in a, in a full episode in the coming weeks because we have uh, more timely fish to fry, I suppose, um, on, on the show today. And that is uh, talking about the Rochester Police Department and report released by Deputy Mayor James P. Smith, along with you know, the 323 pages of documents uh, released uh, in the initial uh, internal investigation from the mayor's office into the RPD. So we will be talking about how uh, evidence suggests that the Ro Rochester Police Department has a culture of insularity that has colored its handling of the Daniel Prude case. Uh, we will lay out some evidence that shows, in our opinion, how the RPD looked out for its own internal interests, more of the interests of the people it's supposedly uh, existing to protect and serve, especially Mr. Daniel Prude, who was suffering from a mental health crisis. We'll go into several pieces of evidence that were released in the report and uh, show how we think, again, this is another example where we should uh, value, you know, human uh, human lives more so than, than private interests. Whether that's the culture of policing, whether it's the culture of the economy, we need to put human lives and social well-being at the forefront of things that value and matter in our society. And we'll close out the hour talking about the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She passed away yesterday at the age of 87 due to cancer. And we'll talk about, uh, you know, a little bit of her legacy and also what that means for the future of the Supreme Court. Uh, President Trump and Mitch McConnell have already vowed to fill that seat. For those who remember from 2016, Mitch McConnell infamously denied President Obama his opportunity to uh, nominate someone to the Supreme Court, even though he had 10 months left in his presidency. Now, Donald Trump has potentially two months left in his presidency, but Mitch McConnell is, of course, being a hypocrite because he cares nothing besides his own, well, self-interest, as we've already discussed, more so than, you know, the interest of of our democratic society, and therefore he's already uh, uh, saying that he will ram through a Trump, a third Trump appointee for the Supreme Court as soon as possible, hopefully within the next two months before the election. So three things to talk about, the Rand Corporation report, the RPD, culture of insularity, and also the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We want to hear your thoughts throughout this hour, though. You can give us a call at 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. Your voice matters on evidence of design. I'm 100.9 FM WXIR. 
Matt, Mary, let's start with the report that was just released this week by the RAND Corporation. They're a nonprofit. Some folks might have remembered the RAND Corporation from way back in the 1970s where, uh, you know, they uh, had journalists, uh, well, the, no, excuse me, the journalist who was working on what eventually became uh, the Pentagon Papers that de- detailed how, uh, you know, a series of presidential administrations lied to the American people about the war in Vietnam, uh, that journalist worked originally for the Rand Corporation. And so that, that might be a familiar name to people. Long story short, they're a nonprofit, and uh, they released a report this week detailing how, uh, you know, around 90% of Americans have been left behind by our winner-take-all economy. So right now, a full-time worker w- with taxable income, uh, our medium, sorry, our median full-time taxable income uh, is around $50,000 a year in the United States. So median worker, full-time taxable income, around $50,000 a year. Were our economy to be as equally, uh, you know, were our economy to be as equitable as it was uh, in the periods immediately following World War II, the median income in the United States would be around $100,000 as opposed to $50,000. So basically, what's going on? You know, our profitability is increasing, we're not getting, uh, sorry, our productivity is not uh, decreasing. You know, we're not getting less productive as a society, as an economy. Our technology increases. We work harder. Our productivity increases over time. We have better technology. We have more efficiencies, so on and so forth. And so we as a society and an economy are being more productive. And therefore, you would think, you would then have more money. That That's kind of the basic theory of capitalism. You get more money, the more productive you are. So what's going on? Why has uh, you know the incomes of the vast majority of Americans not increased as much as it should have over the past 50 years? According to the Rand Corporation's report, they write that, uh, you know, by large, it's because of feral, failed policy decisions, such as allowing the value of the minimum wage to deteriorate, such as not protecting various worker uh, rights and uh, benefits, such as health care or overtime coverage, such as having failed policy decisions undermine labor law and union protections, and such as, most importantly, valuing the interests of shareholders and stockholders more so than any other interests. We've extensively written about this before, or talked about this before on this show. You know, Milton Friedman was a famous economist who was really the, the godfather of modern capitalist theory, and that's it's the theory of maximizing shareholder value. That's kind of the world we've been living in over the past 50 years, which says, you know, the business of business is business. Business have no obligation to look into anything other than their own profits. It's normal and natural for people to be self-interested, and therefore, that's the way society should work. And that leads a direct result to have our quality of life, to have uh, the structures in our society be lessened and weakened and, um, you know, uh, reduced. And so this report by the Rand Corporation uh, reveals, among other things, again, we will cover this in more, uh, but there, someone who worked on this report, his name is Nick Hanauer. Folks might have seen him if you're tuned into the economic inequality sphere. He's a billionaire venture uh venture capitalist he's described himself as a zillionaire because he's he, he's basically someone who's incredibly rich he's a member of the one percent but who critiques his own wealth and he's been urging and urging and urging for the government to take a, a more active role in ensuring an equitable equitable distribution of income and wealth so he argues there's zero reason for me to be a billionaire why the heck are you not taxing me why the heck are you allowing allowing people and corporations to reap in so much profit you know why is jeff bezos worth uh, you know at least a few weeks ago 200 billion dollars uh it's it's a stupid amount of money you know and he writes uh quote this inequality uh, explains almost everything it explains why people are so pissed off it explains why they are so economically precarious and indeed that is the whole point of our show we believe that so much of the problems that we have in our society is due to economic inequality and we need to do something about it and there are things we can do 
unfortunately, uh, you know, neither President Trump nor uh, not, uh, Democratic nominee Joe Biden seem to talk all that much about economic inequality. Joe Biden a little more so, but uh, you know that's why we are frustrated by an overall lack of attention paid to economic inequality because above all, most politicians still believe in the free market capitalism rhetoric. And that is a huge, huge problem. People are working hard. They're playing by the so-called rules. And yet at the end of the day, we are still not getting ahead. Indeed, we're falling farther and farther behind as we work to struggle to pay for college, to pay for car, to pay for health care, so on and so on and so on. We need to change our policy to make sure that our, uh, that our society and our economy works more for human beings more so than the interests of money. We will cover the, that RAND Corporation report and more. For now, though, we will turn our attention to the RPD and what we would uh, echo the words of Deputy Mayor James P. Smith, what seems to suggest a culture of insularity at the RPD. We'll go over several you know, key pieces of evidence from the report that was released by the Deputy Mayor this past Monday and also those that reveal kind of internal documents uh, depositions, uh, emails, so on and so forth that reveal, huh, the RPD seem to have not valued Mr. Prude's life as much as they perhaps should, and they seem to have worked in their own interests more than the interests of the society they are sworn to protect and serve. We'll get to that right after a short break. Hang on. Zombie by Fila Kuti. And this is, I love Fila Kuti. Um, this is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. You're welcome to give us a call throughout the hour at 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. What are your thoughts about the calls for racial justice and police reform in Rochester? We want to hear from you, 585-219-8889. Nine. Right now, we're going to be talking about uh, the report released this past Monday by Deputy Mayor James P. Smith that detailed, uh, you know, his wishes to reform the RPD. Again, there's a lot of perhaps inside baseball here where it's hard to know what the mayor's office knew when they knew it, and so this report could be seen by critics of it to to be a, a too little, too late, trying to save face type of report. Where it's like, oh yeah, you know, we knew this was wrong the whole time, and now we're coming out with something just to say, uh, you know, all of these things really need to be done because now uh, the proverbial crap is at the fan, and we need to <laughs> do something about this. Uh, so, you know, folks can look at it that way from a critical lens, and uh, either way, you can see this report as laying out what seems to be pretty important steps that we could do to reform the RPD. I would argue some of them still don't go far enough, but the most important one that we want to argue about today is this so-called culture of insularity. That is the words of Deputy Mayor James P. Smith in his report, but we will kind of echo those words too and talk about them and expand them ourselves. This culture of insularity at the RPD uh, that we think colored its handling of the case to make it seem as if uh, when they were, you know, handling uh, Daniel Prude and all of the events that took place after that to make it seem like the RPD was doing everything to the letter of the law and that that is all fine and whatever the letter of the law is, is just fine. And therefore, there's nothing to see here, folks. There's nothing wrong. We were doing our job as we were trained to do. Yeah, as uh, Mike Mazio on the Locust Club would have you believe. Yeah, he's the president of the Locust Club who said, look, nothing to see here, folks. Uh, the RP, the officers followed their training to the T. And therefore, you know, if, if you got a problem with the training, you got to take it up with the training. Don't take it up with our officers, <laughs> which, uh, is a really, really, um, uh, intellectually lazy argument. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, obviously protesters are calling for changing police training, right? And so, and, and obviously, police training is created by. Well, they're calling. They're, many of them are calling for more than that. They're calling for yeah. the defunding of the police. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, a, a rearticulation of what it means to police in, in society. Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, protesters are calling for, among other things, at least, yeah, changing training, i.e. changing what policing means. And so, <laughs> you know, yes, yes, we get the point, Mr. Mazio, that, um, that the problem is with the training. Thank you very much. And by the way, training is made by, by police officers. Just to highlight this, there was a really interesting moment during a press conference a little earlier in the protests, I think maybe the, the third or fourth day before Singletary was uh, resigned and then was fired, uh, where he was asked, you know, if you had officers who were dispatched to a call very, very similar to that of Daniel Prude, would they react any differently and how would they react? And he didn't have a solid answer. So I think this really highlights exactly what you're saying, that this response is a little bit too late and too little in that, you know, the police department at least does not have the excuse that they didn't know what had happened and they weren't actively working to figure out a different way to respond to this kind of situation. Yeah, absolutely. And so, again, what we're talking about is the report released by Deputy Mayor James P. Smith. If you Google RPD report, it'll come up for you. You can also go to the city's website and then, you know, find it there as well. But again, this is the report released this past Monday, Deputy Mayor James P. Smith, an internal uh, investigation by the mayor's office into the RPD's handling of the Daniel Prude case. Among the 10-page report from the deputy mayor, there's also 323 pages of documents and communications by the RPD. Folks might have seen this, make it all the way up to the New York Times, etc., about how the RPD and the city's law department worked to cover up the Daniel Prude case and kick the can down the road. Our current acting <laughs> police chief, uh, was it Mark Simmons, I believe? Yeah, or, yeah Mark Simmons uh, was one of the people uh, involved. In, in his statements have come out through the reports, and he said, look, we don't want this to get out because it certainly would make us look bad and people could interpret it the wrong way. He said he didn't want um, people to find out about uh, Daniel Prude's uh, killing and conflate it with other killings of unarmed black Americans across the country that had sparked similar protests like the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Right. And, pe- and people would interpret it the wrong way. I mean, you know, what was the right way to interpret it? Just out of curiosity. Uh, it was his fault. Ah. <laughs> yeah. It, it make Daniel Prude a suspect, right? That whole, that whole thing that's been gaining a lot of media. It was a drug attention. overdose. Right. And he was resisting arrest. And he was a criminal because he smashed windows. Yeah. Yeah. That whole thing. So, you know, I, I certainly don't promote people taking uh, substances that cause harm to their bodies. I certainly don't promote people um, smashing windows, whether they're under the influence of drugs or not. Uh, you know, but this doesn't make Daniel Prude's murder any more or less a problem, right? There's no reason Daniel Prude had to die that day. And, and this is the, this is the, this is what we're talking about. And, and if you watch how, uh, how it happened, you don't need three officers to restrain someone who's already in handcuffs, who's already suffering from mental health crisis, and who already has a spit sock over his head. And if you're reaching for reasons why it's acceptable that Daniel Prude died on that night, I think you need to reexamine your principles. Totally. Yeah. You, you, yeah, right. You, you know, you can watch the video. You do not need an officer to put their full body weight into your face into the ground for three and a half minutes. While you're naked. In, in handcuffs. In wearing injury. a spit sock. These are three grown men pressing their body weight into one other grown man. You know, it's like, that's a problem. And we should be okay talking about how that's a problem. And if the officers are trained to do that, then that's a problem. And we should train, we should change the training or, you know, it's not probably not, it's probably not just changing the training. We don't go into the curriculum and say, Hey guys, so don't press people's faces into the ground as we've been doing for months. It's got to be broader than that, right? You're not scratching out one sentence or two <laughs> and changing it to something else. It's a much larger systemic issue. And that's what we're talking about. That's what the energy is going on in Rochester. That's what the larger rhetoric is about Black Lives Matter and, you know, defund the police. That's what the focus is. I mean, like this, I think it's back to the the problem with police reform and retraining where it's like, you know, six years ago we were talking about illegal chokeholds. Right. It's like, all right, we, we banned chokeholds, but you're still like literally pressing people's faces into the ground until they can't breathe anymore. It's the same problem. It's just a different maneuver. Yeah. How many times does someone have to say, I can't breathe? 
You know, I, I, I don't understand it. <laughs> so stop doing that to human beings. Stop. They're, if they're, especially if they're not being a threat to you. Stop doing that. Stop suffocating people to death. Stop. Stop doing it. I, I don't I don't get it, you know? So so just like at a bare minimum, can we change that part of the police training <laughs> where it says don't don't do that to people? And, and and you know, okay, so let's move on from there though. Well, let's move on from the idea that we should stop suffocating people to death uh from a police department whose job it is to protect and serve people. Uh it's very frustrating. I I think that is being very generous though to say that they were meant to protect and serve people that you know, maybe that's not how things are um, in reality. I, I mean, I think that we're seeing that police are meant to protect property. Yeah. And not people. And, you know, yeah. So I, I wanted to sort of get to this later, but there's no need to build up to a, a crescendo. Um, yeah, Mary, I, I completely agree with you. We've talked last week on the show how, um, you know, the police department, through my lens, through a more... Uh, critical Marxist lens views the police, you know, the thin blue line that the police are protecting us from is, is the so-called threat that would happen were our current capitalist system to collapse. Meaning were our current capitalist system, one that values private property more than human lives. Oh golly, what would happen to us were that system to collapse the terror and the anarchy that would come, <laughs> you know, I'm being sarcastic here. And so, uh, you know, I, I agree that, uh, where I think this rhetoric of defund the police comes from, where I think so much anger is directed at towards the police is because there are so many parts of our society that are fundamentally broken. And this directly connects to how we started off the episode with the Rand report, where we live in a society that values money and profits and capitalism more than it values, um, you know, human beings. And so when we talk of when anger is directed at the police, it's both literally directed at the police, human beings who are doing unhelpful things to other human beings. And a very obvious example of that is suffocating people to death repeatedly for no reason. But there's a much larger and important and a really important metaphorical argument directed towards the police is that the police are the people who are defending an unjust system. The police are the people whose job it is to maintain the status quo. And if the police's training is to maintain the status quo and the status quo is fundamentally broken, then the police obviously represent a problem with yeah, it's our like society. An occupational force. Indeed. They are the occupational force then. And we must have nuance here. I'm not saying all police officers are bad. I don't believe that. I'm not saying we do not need law enforcement. I personally don't believe that. I'm all for having uh, some form of a police department. And I have very many other friends who disagree with me on that. And that's totally fine. I'm saying in principle, I do not think there's anything wrong with having uh, some form of, you know, peacekeeping uh, force in society. But I, I would imagine that to be much, much different than our modern police department. And so, you know, to get to your point, Mary, when it comes to kind of uh, you know, this thin blue line with police and what they're for, uh, the anger directed at police is both their, their literal sense and also the medical for metaphorical sense of that our society is fundamentally broken and why are police defending this broken society and indeed contributing through it with their actions. And just a reminder folks that you too can share what your thoughts are by giving us a call at 585-219-8889. Again, this is evidence of design and 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Give us a call at 585-219-8889. Let's turn our attention now to some of the uh, specific pieces of the report released by Deputy Mayor James P. Smith this past Monday. Yeah, could I... Uh I'd just like to, to preface this discussion by directly quoting uh, Deputy Mayor James P. Smith's report. And in it, he, he wrote, quote, the records reveal a culture, the, the records meaning the 323 pages that were released along with the 10-page report that uh, Mr. Smith wrote. The records reveal a culture of insularity, acceptance, and quite frankly, callousness that permeates the Rochester Police Department. From the cavalier and unsympathetic attitude displayed by the officers present at the mental hygiene arrest to the investigators in the major crimes unit and the professional standards section who seemingly saw nothing wrong after reviewing the body-worn camera footage 
to the police chief and his command staff, who continued to describe the death of Mr. Prude as the result of an overdose and, quote, resisting arrest, end quote, even after the medical examiner ruled it a homicide and the video showed Mr. Prude did not resist his arrest, end quote. So, the, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Jason, the New York Times wrote an article referencing this report earlier this week, and they sort of focused on all of the sort of steps that both the Rochester Police Department and, and other affiliated, um, well, not, not necessarily members of the Rochester Police Department, but people within their orbit took in order to prevent the footage of uh, Daniel Prude's killing being released to the public. But something that you and I sort of were very struck by when we were looking at it uh, earlier this week was this this accusation that Deputy Mayor Smith is leveling at the department, the Rochester Police Department, that there's this like this insular culture that is uh, informing the every step of this process from the initial arrest and killing of Daniel Prude to uh, all the everything that, that was handled after it. And I find that really interesting because I think it uh, articulates very well this this problem and of of modern policing and why so many people are are fed up with it and feel that it needs to be you know just remade on a structural level. Completely agree. Yeah, there's this disconnect between what the lens of the badge is versus the lens of society is. You know, the lens of the badge says everything's all right. We followed our training to the law. No excessive force was used, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The lens of society says, how can there, how is there no problem here? Like what's going on? You know, how can we deem this acceptable? So Matt, you just read, uh, you know, a statement from Deputy Mayor James P. Smith and he says, you know, uh, all of these things show how there are issues with the, the RPD's handling of Daniel Prude's case. Well, let's look at some evidence of what the police frames their handling of the case as. So the day of the incident, way back on March 23rd, uh, commanding officer Lieutenant Stephen Sweatman wrote to then-police chief Laurent Singletary, uh, quote, um, Upon review of the current information available relative to this incident, there is no evidence to suggest any excessive force or misconduct on part of the officers. The evidence on its face supports that the involved officers acted appropriately to keep Mr. Prude from standing up and continuing to spit at officers. That's on page 65 of the documents that were released. So, you know, if, if you think it's appropriate for three grown men to force another grown man's body into the ground while that one grown man is handcuffed and wearing a spit sock while naked, uh, in the winter, um, then I disagree with your view of normal and non-excessive. Of what's know? acceptable. Right. So I, I disagree with that. You know, so here, here on the day of the incident, the RPD is saying no excessive force was used. Everything's fine. And how many of those people had seen the footage? I mean, was that from hearsay or was that from actually seeing what had happened? I think that commanding officer, Lieutenant Stephen Sweatman there was writing in reference to the footage he saw. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, let's continue on that timeline. So, again, there's the, sort of the day of the incident. Here's a commanding officer reviewing the case. Uh, let's continue on to what then became a internal investigation because once the, um, you know, once Mr. Prude had died and once it was labeled a homicide, I believe, if I got my timeline correct, the RPD initiated, an, uh, you know, an internal review. And so there's RPD special investigator Zenolovic. Uh, in his summary that he writes uh, of the RPD's handling of the case, he writes that the officers had to use, quote, minimal force to keep Prude on the ground. He writes that Prude was, quote, stabilized, end quote, until a short time later when off, or, excuse me, until, quote, a short time later when officers noticed that Prude had apparently stopped breathing. So, that writing there, that framing, you know, how officers had to use minimal force. Again, spit sock, handcuffs, three men pressing someone at the ground is not my definition of minimal force. I mean, the way it's phrased, it seems to suggest that 
Daniel Prude's loss of consciousness and his his uh, the fact that he had stopped breathing is totally unrelated to the fact that restraint was used. Exactly, and that's the big key is that it's just like oh, Daniel Prude happens to stop breathing, and of course the RPD was blaming that more on drugs than it was on the officer's actions. You know, he again, special investigator Zenalovic writes that our, Mr. Prude was quote stabilized, and if your definition of stabilized is again handcuffs, spit sock three police officers pressing your body into the ground, then okay. Uh, and also, yes, Matt, the, the big one for me too is that, you know, officers noticed Prude had apparently stopped breathing. Well, we didn't do that. <laughs> That's unrelated. It, it was a force of nature. Yes. The, uh, and, and here, here's the, um, here's the account now from officer Vaughn. This is the officer who was the one sort of, uh, as he would frame it, segmenting, Mr. Prude's head on the ground, the one who was in the push-up position on Mr. Prude's head for over two and a half minutes. Uh, he said that he uh, stopped pressing Mr. Prude's face into the ground until he, quote, became calm. And later on, he said, quote, uh, at which point it appeared that Mr. Prude was not breathing. That's some definition of calm. Yes. Yeah. Matt, you and I were talking about this yesterday, how horribly grim and sad and this is when you know if your definition of someone becoming calm is when they've uh, stopped breathing then I also disagree with your interpretation of reality <laughs> you know um, it, it's very sad and hard to read this stuff you know this is the officer's first hand account of uh, his, his actions and uh, you know it Mr. Prude's also wearing a spit sock, so it's it's hard to see what his facial expressions are. Uh, but one need not see someone's facial expressions when you're pressing their face into the ground for for more than two and a half minutes. There's just there's just nothing you can say, right? Like there's no we shouldn't be having to to um, I guess contrast the officers' reports of the of their act of their actions with the, the footage that we've all now seen. It's just, it's an, it's like two different worlds. It's entirely unconscionable in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It is two different worlds. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is, again, we're framing, we're, we're talking about how, uh, the RPD is framing its handling of the prude case through a, in the words of deputy mayor, James P. Smith, a quote culture of insularity and how they view the world through the lens of their badge, as opposed to through the lens of society, which Matt you're saying is, you know, how we as sort of citizens would view the footage when we look at it. If you give it to any reasonable and prudent person, I think that they're not going to say, huh, you know, that was okay. Uh, Mr. Prude was showing excessive force and he needed to be restrained in, in the manner that he was restrained. You know, most people would say that's a problem. And so that, that's kind of, this is why this issue is here. <laughs> um, I, I want to highlight just one more piece of evidence for the sake of time from the report. This one really sticks out to me. Uh, so we know now that the medical examiner, of course, ruled Mr. Prude's death as a homicide uh, because of, quote, uh, complications of asphyxia in the setting of physical restraint. The medical examiner also noted contributing factors were that Mr. Prude was high on PCP at the time of the event. So again, medical examiner rules it a homicide and says the primary cause is complications of asphyxia in the setting of physical restraint. That's a, that's a, you know, a fancy way of saying he was choked to death by police officers. And so, uh, on page 105 of the documents that were released, there is a really interesting email written by then police chief Laurent Singletary to Mayor Lovely Warren's office. There's a lot to get in here. I'll just focus on one aspect of it. He was writing it to Justin Raj, the, uh, I think he's still the chief of communications for the, for the mayor's office. He writes, uh, then police chief Laurent Singletary, uh, you know, he says, hey, Justin, da, da, da. And then the quote is, today, the medical examiner's office ruled on Prude's death and determined such to be a homicide with the below attributing factors. PCP in his system, per toxicology reports, excited delirium and resisting arrest. 
So he didn't even mention the primary cause. Well, he he changed it to resisting arrest. Right. So not only did then police chief Laurent Singletary reorder the causes of death, but he skewed what the medical examiner wrote. Again, the medical examiner wrote, and it's very clear, this is our, this is also in the report, that Mr. Prude's death was a homicide from, quote, complications of asphyxia in the setting of physical restraint. Police chief Laurent Singletary writes, you know, it was a homicide, but... He reorders them first to prioritize the idea that Daniel Pruitt's death was caused mainly by his use of his drug use. And then he uh, places blame on Daniel Pruitt, saying, saying he was resisting arrest, not that he was physically restrained in an unsafe way. Right. That is a, is a very powerful email. And, and there's a lot more to get into that. You know, he talks about how the mayor's in the loop since <laughs> he says the mayor has been in on the loop since March 23rd. <laughs> He says, I'm just waiting for the mayor to call me to give her the update on the medical examiner's ruling. So, you know, Mayor Warren says she didn't know about the case until August. But <laughs> Well, she hadn't seen the video until August. Yeah, she hadn't seen the video. Well, you know, I, I guess maybe you can give her credit for not knowing what happened if Ron Singletary really is lying in this way. Um, so, you know, th this is an issue. Uh, that's not what the medical examiner wrote. And to say Mr. Prude was resisting arrest is simply untrue. To anyone who watched the video, the moment the officer shows up, he, I think Vaughn or Talladega, I don't know, he immediately pulls out his taser, points it at uh, Mr. Prude. He says, get on the ground, hands behind your back. Mr. Prude does it immediately, hands behind his back, handcuffed. Certainly Mr. Prude is, um, you know, shouting things and, and sort of uh, being agitated, uh, but uh, he is suffering from mental health crisis. And therefore, shouting things and being agitated, agitated is uh, normal for mental health crisis. And it's not also evidence it's, of... It's just never grounds to murder somebody. Yeah. And so it's, it's not resisting arrest. And, and when the officers moved to restrain Mr. Prude was when he went from his prone position into a seated position and went to stand up. You know, Then they spent three and a half minutes pressing his body into the ground until he suffocated to death. And so there's just there's just the, the training, the culture. There's no reason to do that to another human being. He was not a threat to someone. He already had the spit sock on his head at the moment. He At the time, he was already handcuffed. Why are you doing this to another human being who's suffering from a mental health crisis? And so, yeah. Why is he on the ground naked? So. Yeah. You know, put him in the police car. Done. Problem solved. You know? <laughs> Uh, and just so there's a million different things could have should could have should have woulda uh, but the point is mary to what you brought up earlier you know when then police chief Laurent singletary was asked well if rpd had to respond to a similar situation today would anything change and he doesn't have a good answer well that's what we're fighting for is to make sure that we have a better answer because there are things that we can do to change that just like at the start of the hour we're talking about how our economy is fundamentally broken the winner take all economy uh, serves the needs of the wealthy more so than it serves the needs of the people, there's things we can do to change that. We don't just have to sort of, you know, shrug our shoulders and say, this is the way it is. This is the way it's always been. It's always been this way. There are things we can do to change that. And it certainly always has not been this way. It's, it's very short-sighted to say that. Um, and I, I think in this case, there is a lot that the police department could do as you said, at a minimum to change his training. Um, but it is also one of the very good reasons that reform isn't enough. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, these calls to defund the police, there's a, there's a lot of ways to, d to define that. The point is policing must change in the modern United States. And, and so too should other institutions. What your thoughts are on this, we would love to hear by giving us a call at 585 219 8889. Again, that's 585 219 8889. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester, Rochester's extreme independent radio station. You can give us a call at 585 219 8889. Speaking of which, we do have someone on the line. Hello, you're on Evidence of Design. What's on your mind? Hey, this is Aaron from Queens uh, calling in with uh, actually a another special guest jeff from webster yeah aaron from queens and jeff from webster calling in and we just wanted to know you i normally call in and have uh you know extended 10 15 hour long rants 
about various topics. But when you say policing must change, what must it change to? What does your vision of policing look like after your ideal reforms, whatever they may be? Yeah, uh, thanks for calling. Aaron from Queens, Jeff from Webster. Always great to hear from the both of you. Uh, I've, I've said already on on the uh, on the air that I think that I'm not opposed to having police officers or a police department in some fashion. This is not my wheelhouse. I will definitely leave it to uh, you know other organizers and folks who actually think uh, about this, folks in the criminal justice system or field scholars in that way. Um, with that being said, my own top of the head opinions, I would love it if we had uh, more triaged supports to people. So in, in, the, in the instance for Mr. Prude suffering from mental health crisis, I would love it if we had trained mental health professionals to respond to mental health crises, for instance. I would love it if there were, um, you know, traffic violations or traffic incidents happening, if we need to enforce those things that we don't have armed officers doing them. I would love it that if police officers were not used as a multi-tool to fix society's problems. So much of what police officers do is solve is, well, police officers are called to fight problems of poverty, you know, and police officers are the least helpful thing to fight problems of poverty because they are the ones upholding the system that creates poverty, rampant poverty, yeah. meaning excess capitalism. So stop sending a police officer to deal with problems that are mainly caused from poverty, you know, uh, social workers, I don't know, other people like that. Uh, I think police officers are a good response when there is someone who is posing an imminent threat of danger to society. Heaven forbid those things happen. We just went through a shooting last night in Rochester uh, near the public market. You know, uh, unfortunately, things like that happen in society, and we need people who can use force to stop force. That's that's my belief. And so that could be a legitimate use of police, policing. Um, otherwise, I would love to see our society be rearticulated re to support root causes of issues and support people as human beings rather than trying to so-called enforce law and order. Because if law and order is enforcing a society that is inherently unjust, then your definition of law and order is not one that I agree with. Go ahead, Mary. Um, just the other note about uh, that I, we haven't like invoked this term yet today of public safety and the you know, the building that, that police officers are quote-unquote protecting or have been protecting throughout many of these protests is the public safety building in Rochester. And so the question that we're facing and the organizers are facing as we come up against the police department is what does it mean to have a safe public and how can we create true public safety? The police department is obviously not answering that question in an appropriate way. They are violence workers, as Jason said, and that is only in an appropriate response in very few situations. Many of the situations that they respond to are not, do not require a violent response. And so for those, we need to think about what public safety means in that case? What does it mean when you're responding to a mental health crisis? What does it mean when you're responding to poverty? Um, and how can we expand social safety nets? How can we uh, create support systems for our public that truly create a safe public um, instead of just imposing violence when it's not needed? Yeah. Um, so I... I, I in terms of the value of policing and should it, should it be allowed to continue, I do sort of wonder. Um, I, I do think I do think that we need some kind of like like Jason said. I think we do need some some force or, or organization in our society that is uh, equipped to handle serious threats. I mean, Christopher A. Ray, the uh, the director of the FBI, just said this week that the the most dangerous. Um, uh, terroristic threat posed to the U.S. is violent extremists, many of them being white supremacists that are living in the U.S. I think that perhaps the need for such a force would be much less apparent if we had, you know, stricter gun laws across the nation and just, a, you know, more more regulation in general in regards to the the sale and use of deadly weapons. But um, there was a concept that came across 
earlier this week while reading an article on NPR involving the removal of a former slave, a statue of a former slave owner in a town called Bristol. And at one point, the article mentioned this idea of policing by consent, which is sort of unique to British policing, at least in regards to American policing. And, and essentially what policing by consent is, is that the police force in in Great Britain understands that their ability to police and, and sort of govern effectively is wholly determined by the public's faith and trust in them as an organization. And so they prioritize the safety and, and sort of support of the public over following the law to the letter of the law. And that was one of the reasons given why when protesters, you know, uh, tore down the statue of the slave owner, police just sat by and let them do it because they were prioritizing the safety of the community. They didn't want to get involved and start a confrontation that they felt could turn violent. Where you see the the response that even in Rochester that we've had to protesters where, you know, at 11 o'clock, the police are like, this is now an illegal protest, disperse, and then they start firing Even tear earlier gas. than that. Even actually. earlier than that. Yeah. And they start firing tear gas, which is an abortifacient, is that how you pronounce it? It's a, it's a chemical weapon that is outlawed by the UN, and they're using it on our own citizens. I mean, the, the absolute disconnect between what police are supposed to do, protect and serve, versus what they're actually doing. And also the, the sound cannon, the LRAD that the police have deployed in Rochester and the dogs. Uh, there's been reports this, this week from National Guard leaders who testified to Congress about how the National Guard uh, was in cooperation with the military and the White House to figure out what weapons to stockpile and what munitions to use against the protesters in Washington DC. And, you know, they were taught, and that's when the, you know, the, the Trump administration and, and, and National Guard and military flew the Black Hawk helicopters very low over the ground. They were talking about deploying a heat ray weapon that's been around for a while, but it it makes your skin, it makes it feel like your skin is on fire. You know, the the LRAD, the sound cannon can cause permanent deafness. Um, So, you know, uh, these are, these are people, these are not anarchists, rioters, looters, as Tucker Carlson would love to make you believe, because Tucker Carlson is is, uh, not the greatest human being who exists. Uh, You know, so just like, why why is this culture out there no these are in in rochester in particular these organizers are the people who are trying to re- redefine public safety every night uh when you when you go out to the protests there you know people aren't showing up some people show up ready to fight but for the most part people are showing up ready to support a new system and to show that a new system is necessary. And the organizers have ideas about how that can be done. And they want to get into negotiations to be able to change the system that we have. It's not, you know, it it is not a war. It shouldn't be anyway, Mm. but that is what it's starting to look like. Yeah. Yeah. There, there should we live in a pluralistic society where we, where trust is really important. Let's go back to the Enlightenment four to five hundred years ago, well, less three to four hundred years ago, where in order for society to function, we need to make sure that we can trust in other people to treat each other the way they want to be treated. It's as simple as that. It's literally first grade. Treat each other the way they want to be treated. And so, you know, <laughs> there's so many different examples to go to. If, gosh, dang it, I'm going to go to Mitch McConnell. If Mitch McConnell says, you know, we're not going to take up Obama's Supreme Court nomination, but then it comes to Trump and he's like, no, we can do this, even though it's in a shorter time frame, and even though Obama has, uh, even though Trump has had lower poll ratings than uh, than Obama at any time, you know, he's not treating people the way that they want to be treated. And what that causes is anger. And what that causes is violence. When we have so much poverty and in the winner-take-all economy, we're not treating other people the way that they ought to be treated. And so what recourse do you have? The, the fabric of society is woven through what we call the social contract. That is sort of faith and trust in institutions that govern us. When you disrupt that or undermine that or in any way show that that trust is misplaced, that's when you create a violent situation. Indeed. 
And when our leaders fail so horribly, we have such a leadership glut in the United States right now. Where are our Martin Luther King Juniors? You know, where are our Bobby Kennedys? And I'm not putting those people particularly on pedestal. I'm just saying, you know, at a time of civil rights, uh, you know, those were leaders back then. Where are our leaders nowadays? You know? Oh, they are on the street. Exactly. And so they, they are there. We're, we are the leaders. We, the people are the leaders. We are the grassroots leaders in the ground. And so, you know, Tucker Carlson, you can call authentic democratic leadership people who are fighting to regain trust in the social contract as rioters, anarchists, and looters. And that just proves how you as a leader are part of the problem. Our, you know, Mayor Lovely Warren, supposed to be a leader, saying that these protesters are outside agitators. Chief Singletary lying about the RPD's, you know, handling of the case. Donald Trump with an endless litany of disgusting failures on leadership, you know. I mean, <laughs> we're living through tough times in the United States. And it's because our leaders have failed us, our social contract has been broken, and society is not looking out for the interests of people, it's looking out for self-interests. Whether it's money, or greed, personal profit, or the badge, it's a broken social contract. And that's why people are in the streets. And so that's why we have a lot of work to do to make sure that uh, you know much can change in our society. Because it needs to. It's untenable. It's literally untenable, right? Like it's, it's literally annihilistic to think of, you know, continuing to, for instance, elect Republicans who don't believe in climate change. It's literally extinction, you know? Uh, and, and so things must change. They will eventually. Change is inevitable. Yeah, I mean, either things change or we all die. Yeah, no, I mean, literally, yeah. Well, that's I mean, change, too. So. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, just, just like how I just people... I I'd make it clear. Just yeah. like how people become calm when you suffocate them. You know, they certainly change. It's like, it's, it's just, uh, you know, things need to change. And hopefully they can change in a way that it's this simple. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. And so, you know, when it comes to criticizing police, uh, I, I want to say that no institution is, is immune from criticism. You know, I, I do not envy the job that police officers have. I have, I have worked in jobs that required me to be a first responder to situations and I hated it. I knew I wasn't the person for the job. That's why I'm not doing it anymore. Super stressful, super anxiety inducing, not for me. I'm glad there are people out there who want to do that stuff, but they got to be the right people to do that stuff. They gotta be people, they gotta be people who want to treat other people the way they want to be treated. And they have to be in a structure that is not violent. Yeah, one that produces, you know, social justice and human rights more so than, than anything else. You know, coal miners out there, I critique coal miners because we shouldn't be mining coal anymore. So. Well, coal companies. Coal maybe. companies, right. Yeah, you know, sorry, it's nothing against you. It's just we need to change these institutions. And, and change is natural and fine and it's okay as part of the social contract. We do have to wrap up our hour here though. Thank you for tuning in and joining us as we endeavor to create a better social contract. I'm 100.9 FM WXIR. This was Evidence of Design. We're back on Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Stay in tune with us through our social medias at Radio EOD. Up next is the Esquire Hour. Craig and John always put on a great show. Stay tuned for them, and thanks for tuning in to your extreme independent radio station in Rochester, 100.9 FM WXIR. I was your host, Jason Taylor, joined by good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. So long. And Mary Lawrence. Have a good one. Until then, be well, be safe, take care, wear a mask, and bye-bye.